In this show, we're joined by Ed Liu, astronaut, pioneer engineer, and potentially future savior of planet Earth. We hear about his experiences of the rescue mission to the International Space Station following the tragic loss of Space Shuttle Columbia, his time at Google, and his mission to save Earth from an asteroid collision. Ed embodies leadership to his core in the most inspiring way. Welcome to The Evolving Leader. I'm Scott Allender, and with me, as always, John Gomes. Thank you. How are you feeling, Scott? Uh, I am over the moon excited. I've been super energized all morning about getting to do this interview. How are you feeling? I am feeling thrilled and very grateful that our guest has found time to be with us today. I know just how busy he is. Um, so today we're joined by Dr. Ed Liu, who is a scientist. He's a former NASA astronaut. He's also the former head of Google Advanced Projects. And while still at NASA, he also launched the B612 Foundation with the goal of detecting and tracking asteroids and other near-Earth objects posing threats to the planet. And in the 10 years that I've known Ed, who was introduced to me by my friend Anami Ress, he's one of the nicest, uh, most down-to-earth people I've ever met. So, Ed, thank you for joining us. How are you feeling? Thanks. Uh, we're all COVID-free here in our household, so we're feeling good. Fantastic. Um, we have so much to cover with you today, Ed, but I suppose the best place to start would be with just a brief tour of your career, which has, with no inflation at all, been really incredible. Can you walk us through the chapter headings? Um, sure. Um, I'm an electrical engineer and a uh, astrophysicist, at least my academic training was that. Um, I worked as a research scientist in astrophysics, theoretical astrophysics for a number of years, um, way long time ago, and uh, back in the early 90s. Then went to NASA to become an astronaut, uh, spent 12 years as an astronaut, actually three missions, um, two space shuttle missions, one Soyuz launch to space station six months there, and then returned via Soyuz. Then I left NASA to go to Google to run advanced projects, as you mentioned. Uh, left Google after a few years to spend full time doing a couple different things, um, running the B612 Foundation, working on preventing asteroids from hitting the Earth. It's been a fun challenge, and it's, uh, it's really been sort of, I guess, my life's work. Recently, I also co-founded a, a small startup that's building... Uh, tracking stations and tracking uh, orbital debris and satellites in space so that they don't hit each other around the earth. So that's very in close to the earth. And that's a commercial service for uh, companies that don't want their spacecraft to be hit by uh, orbiting junk. And so uh, that's the history of my career thus far. Okay. Mm. Well, it's unbelievably busy, but um, wow. let's, let's start with your time at NASA. And particularly we must hear about um, the time in, 2003 in the weeks following the loss of the space shuttle Columbia and you were called in to launch to the International Space Station uh, with just a couple of weeks uh, notice with a two-person skeleton crew that sounds incredibly challenging how did you do it a lot of caffeine <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah no it was it was a crazy time we lost the space shuttle early February 2003 February 1st 8 a.m. About a week later, uh, 
I was informed that I would be the guy. We were going to try and keep the space station alive by putting a skeleton crew on board. The only way to do that was to send an American up via Soyuz um, as part of a two-person crew because we only had supplies for, for two people. Um, that meant an American had to train up in order to fly um, the Soyuz. And we, only, we had a limited time, only nine weeks to launch. So, um, and the reason for that was that the station would have to be abandoned in nine weeks because the crew on board spacecraft has, had a limited lifetime. So Friday afternoon, uh, late afternoon, I was informed that it's going to be me. And uh, so this is about a week after the accident. I uh, left for Russia that weekend, spent nine weeks, day and night, day and night, seven days a week, you know, early morning till really late at night, every day, um, learning how to fly a Soyuz. And April 26th, uh, I launched with uh, Yuri Melenchenko to the space station aboard Soyuz. Soyuz TMA-2, it was called. And then we spent six months up there together. It was wow. a crazy time. That was the longest anybody had spent up there to date, and it was it? Um, it was similar to other missions that there, there had been other missions. Uh, maybe it was long as I'm not exactly sure, but it, you know, six months is kind of standard nowadays. So yeah. What's that like? I mean, I imagine there's, there's so many questions we could ask, but just even on an emotional or experiential level, like what's it like to be up there for six months? Well, it was a time of real uncertainty, you know, um, you know, we didn't know what caused the crash yet. The investigation was ongoing. 99% of the attention at NASA was based, was looking at the shuttle accident. Sort of a, really a time of uncertainty. Um, also, we were sort of uncertain how we were, how were we going to manage this because the station wasn't meant to be you know, maintained by just two people. Uh, it turned out that we were able to do it, and, and there were a number of crews after us, a two-person crews, quite a few actually after us. Uh, but we were the first to to uh, attempt to do this. And, you know, we, again, we did it on very short notice. So um, we were tired the, 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 on the day we launched. We were, this was not an ideal situation in that uh, we were very, very tired because we mm -hmm. had been working, you know, hundred plus hour weeks in a row, no days off until launch for, for two months, a little over two months. So as you, as you look back over that time, um, what, what were some of the things that you learn about yourself and, and you know, either managing yourself and you as a leader in that experience? Because that, that is uh, such an incredibly intense experience. Well, obviously, you can't do it all by yourself. You have to trust the people you're working with, you know, the support staff, literally hundreds of other people who are trying to drag me and Yuri across the finish line to get us ready to go. And um, just like any space flight, you, you, you cannot do it all yourself. So, you know, you have to think of yourself as part of the team, even though you may be the person whose name's up at the top of it, um, in the sense that, you know, the, the focus was on you as the astronaut sitting on board the capsule. But <clears throat> you shouldn't ever um, believe the hype that you're doing it all by yourself, because you're not. How many times does the sun rise and sunset from up there? How many times do you see that happen? Uh, about 16 times a day, there's some, some slight variations, but, um, essentially we're going around the planet about every 90 minutes. Wow. And so you, you see a lot of sunrises and sunsets each day. How does that affect your sleep pattern? Yeah. You, you don't sleep by the, whether or not it's 
sort of day or night. You sleep by the clock, right? And when it's time to go to sleep, you know, you have to close the, sh- the, uh, the windows. We had shutters over the windows and, you know, close it up. Otherwise, it's just, you'll get woken up at light. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been to a far northern place in, uh, you know, in June or in the northern hemisphere of June, you know, white nights. And it is difficult to sleep unless you close the drapes in the window. It's very difficult to sleep that time of year. No, I just wondered how it affects you psychologically, because even though you're you're cutting yourself off from the light, you've been in this experience where you you're uh, cycling through the days in almost record time. Yeah, yeah, it, it it is a little weird, but remember, you you have control over the internal lighting. So yeah, and when you when you came back, I mean, you know, you 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 uh, you didn't have really any chance to grieve over a, a lot of very close lost lost colleagues. How did you deal with that? Well. I made a promise to myself that I would go visit the either the, the graves or the memorials of every one of my friends. And I did. It took me about a year, and I went to every single one of them. It was, um, it, it was nice to do, you know, and it was and, – and it, it sort of put a cap on the year. It was, it was a very busy year. I, you know, I got married six months after I landed to. Uh, my wife got pregnant right away. <laughs> So a lot of things going on. Um, but, you know, it was important to me that I just wanted to go visit those places and um, just remember my friends. Of course. Well, I could, I could stay on this topic for the entire show, um, talk, about, talk to you about your time in space and, and all of that. But can we switch for a minute to Google? Um, you joined Google to head up their advanced projects division. Um, so what exactly does the advanced projects division do and... What was the culture change like for you moving from NASA to a tech giant? It, it was a big shift, um, primarily because Google at the time, this is, you know, um, late 2000s, you know, they, they sort of, they, the people I was working with were by and large in their 20s. Um, it was sort of a very similar age makeup to what NASA was in the 1960s. And, but by the time I was at NASA in the 90s, um, NASA's, you know, the typical engineers and the pe- typical people you work with were not in their 20s. They were in their 40s or 50s. And that, that's the case today. You know, NASA's age distribution is not skewed towards the really young end, which Google's absolutely was. Um, my wife used to say whenever she stopped by the office, she'd say like, man, I feel like I'm on a college campus. And, and, and really, it was, it was a very young environment. The other thing that was true about uh, Google was that there was a an ur- sense of urgency and, and that's part of, that's co- sort of com- company culture of trying to move quickly, trying to try things and sort of tolerance for trying things that don't turn out the way you think. And I, I, I don't want to call those failures because those are successful experiments, if you'd like, that um, teach you something and then you can move on from, even if it's that the idea that you had isn't a good one. That's still something, a useful data point that you can use to, to go forward. So it had a great exper- uh, experimental culture of, of moving quickly. And um, I, I think something that NASA had gradually lost over the years. Um, they absolutely had that in the 60s. They had a sense of urgency when, when they, ne- they needed to move quickly. But uh, the NASA of today is no longer the NASA of the 1960s, unfortunately. And uh, I'm, I actually, I think Google is making a similar shift. Oh, um, really? 
Yeah, I, I believe so. I'm no longer with them, but I, you know, this is my observation from now outside. Uh, it, it was even shifting while I was there. Can we talk about one or two of the stories of, of, of projects that you led, some of the things that you, you did there that you're particularly proud of? Yeah, one of the things that we did was the imaging systems for Street View. The reason we did Street View basically was to not only provide those images as a you know, feature on Google Maps, but actually to build maps, build our own maps, because that would allow us to no longer have to pay for licensing other people's maps of the streets. And, and, and knowing where the streets are is only part of the battle of building a map. Where the streets are is easy. It's where the houses are. It's where the street signs are. It's where there's one-way street. It's where there's a right-hand turn only or a left-hand turn only. It's where the, the, the house and business numbers are. And those are always changing. And so in order to really build a map in which you could give turn-by-turn -turn directions, you actually need to know where everything is. And that, so there's two ways of doing that. You can either send people going around looking for the, you know, there's no standard location that you put the number on a house, right? There's no standard location you put the number on a building. There's no standard location for putting signage, right? So our solution was, well, if we're, we're going to drive these cars everywhere, so automatically take these pictures and allow the people in the field aren't out there writing down at where the number is, where that house is, where the, the turn lane is. They're just driving a car and it's taking images in all directions and, and we'll gather all this enormous amount of data and we'll figure it out back in the, you know, in the, the back end, if you'd like. And so um, we had a goal to get off of these data sets that we were licensing at an enormous expense. And, so we set the goal of, hey, you know, and when, I, when I walked in the door, you know, I was informed that six months later, we wanted to be driving, you know, the first hundred cars um, using, you know, our own homegrown system of, uh, you know, a set of cameras pointing in all directions. You know, like, where were we? Like, well, we, we haven't started yet. <laughs> no, essentially, they had, they had, there was a commercial solution that they had, which, you know, a little set of cameras, but it, it just, wasn't up to the job because if you think about it, at any given time, if you're outside during the day, one of your cameras is pointed towards the sun. And if you have um, a sign, you know, with the sun in the background, you won't see it, uh, at least not with most cameras. And so we had to design something that was much, much better, much higher resolution. And so we designed and built our own lenses, our own cameras, our own electronics, the, the, the mechanical parts that set it on top of a car. And we had to make this thing, um, simple enough to drive and then, and then we had to buy hundreds of cars and put these things on top put the data logging systems in and actually six months later we had the first hundred cars out on the road that's um, incredible there are you know thousands and thousands of cars um you've probably seen ones drive by on occasion oh, i remember when, when when they were first happening i had no idea what was going on when i saw the vans go by with all the <laughs> yeah, cameras on yep exactly and uh um, they were Chevy Cruises, if I remember right, the first batch of 100. <laughs> uh, but uh, You had um, to build your own GPS system, is that right? Yeah, we did. Because if you use um, GPS and somebody else's database, they can claim that, you, that their intellectual property, their database, was used in the making of your database, and that, therefore it's partially theirs. So we, you know, we built everything. How many people did you have to do this? Our, our camera system basically had sort of like seven full-time people and a couple of other people who were in and out helping on, you know, building test setups or things like that. But um, seven, seven full-timers. 
So. Seven people in six months. Yes. To build one of the world's most disruptive products. It was an awesome time. <laughs> <laughs> so I can see why you'd be proud of that. Hi, folks. Phil Kirby here, producer of the show. If you're enjoying The Evolving Leader and would like to stay connected with us between episodes, follow us on Twitter at evolving underscore leader. And please be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. When you look back at, at you know, the, the leadership lessons in Google, what would you say some of the things that you saw there that, that were struck you as, uh, as powerful and different from what you experienced in the past, other than the speed and, and willingness to experiment? Were there other things that you learned there? Yeah, um, you know, much of the things that I learned was applicable, you know, I think at NASA, a lot of the, you know, bring data, you know, come to your argument with data, you know, that, that is very, very similar between the two organizations, you know, uh, when you make a statement, you know, have something to back it up and, you know, and, and, and have the reference for it, you know, show your data. So it's very data driven in both cases. Um, the difference is really, I think, the, the, the speed of, and the urgency that drove the speed. So what changed at NASA that that's, that speed and that sort of hunger, you know, reduced significantly over the years? And, 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 and I know you're not, you're not with Google anymore, but what do you think is contributing to them kind of falling into that camp as well? In the NASA case, I think a lot of it had to do with the overarching goals of the organization. You know, in the 1960s, was, we're going to get, a, you know, the president himself laid out the goal. And it was a United States effort mm. to put uh, an American on the moon and return him safely by the end of the decade. Right? You know, it was very, very clear. You know, can't get a simpler mission statement than that. And, um, and that's what they worked for. And since then, there's been a, like, well, we'll kind of do this. We'll maybe do this. But, you know, we'll do this as fast as we can, but there's no deadline. And as you know, deadlines do drive completion of things. Um, so it, it just has been a series of, you know, we'll, we'll do the best we can and, you know, and changing priorities and changing missions. And it, it's never really had that sort of overarching goal since then. And I think that's been mm-hmm. a big part of it. Because if there's no overarching goal, there's no way to measure what you do as contributing to that goal or not. So, um, you know, it's as much what you don't do as what you do do. And you've got you, you, you've got some uh, work that you're doing with SpaceX, and I'm, I'm guessing that you're seeing much more of that kind of goal orientation and purpose driven thinking. There is that right? Very much so. Now, uh, SpaceX has made tremendous progress. Um, I sit on a safety advisory panel there, and one of our my fellow uh, panel members was the launch uh, operations director at, at NASA um, from the Apollo times all the way through to the early space shuttle days. And he says that whenever he goes to visit the SpaceX facilities, he feels like it feels like NASA at the Cape in the 1960s. And uh, he says it has that feeling like, like we're, we we're marching towards, you know, something big. We all know what, the, like you can go to any single person at, SpaceX, from the the people sweeping the floors to the people designing you know rocket engine parts to the business development people and say what's the goal of SpaceX and they will tell you it is to it is to uh, settle Mars. Every single person you know the, the the cafeteria people will tell you that it's very clear what their goal is. And um, 
I think that contributes to their speed of operation. I imagine they have a similar view to failure as you do, that there's really no such thing. It's just experiments. Yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, but you need to understand what, how that means. That doesn't mean that you can have like uh, a ship with people on it, you know, blow up and that's okay as a failure. It means that you, you along the way, as you're deciding what's the best thing to do, you can try different things and you should try different things in order to move the ball forward. You know, let's say like you have, it's like when you have a good idea, is it going to work? You can analyze it for six months or you could say like, hey, can I build a test that would tell me the answer to this? of which way we should move next in the next like week. And if the answer to that is yes, you should do that. And, you know, thinking about it so that your, your decisions are based not on analysis, but on test data. And that is what I mean by, you know, there's no unsuccessful test. It doesn't mean you're sloppy when you put people on board or when you get to that point, you know, your tests are passed at that point. This is now an operational thing. And, um, so, you know, uh, this idea of experimenting has to do with moving quickly and, and basing your decisions upon test data rather than analysis. Because analysis is, is sort of by definition, like you don't know. So you're, 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 you're taking some guesses. I'm curious, this just sprung to mind. What are your thoughts on um, Space Force? Ah, yeah. Space Force, for those who don't know, is a new branch of the United States Armed Services was split off essentially from, from the Air Force, um, much the same way the Air Force was split off from the Army. In the, during World War II, the United States, uh, you know, the aircraft and stuff was part of the Army. It was called the Army Air Forces. Um, by the early 50s, I guess, or late 40s, somewhere around there, they, they sort of realized that the, the goals and the training required and the you know, principles of operation of the, this group was different enough from the army that they needed to be separate. And similar things happened here. It's been, you know, people have been talking about this for decades now. Um, I first started hearing this concept of you know, a space force probably 20 years ago. And you know, people have been pushing it for a long time because the people who do operations in space satellites and rockets are very, very different in how they operate than aircraft, bombers, fighters, transport planes. It's just very, very different. But the training required, the mindset, um, you know, the equipping and so on. And so the idea was to break it off because it was felt, and, and I agree, this is true, that the, the folks, this, this has to do with sort of internal politics of how people get promoted that the leadership, you know, the way to become a leader in the Air Force was to become a fighter pilot and come up through that, the ranks of that. And then you get put in charge of a space group, but you may have no or very little experience doing that. So the idea was to break it off and make it be separate. And I, I think it's been a very positive thing. Hmm. That's interesting. Thank you. So let, let's just deviate now for the last 10, 15 minutes that we've got together. Um, and can we talk about you as a leader here, when you're building a new team, Ed, what are the principles that you've learned to apply that, that increase the chances of success? Well, hiring is everything. Um, you know, getting the right people that you can trust to make decisions on their own is much of the battle, I think. And being very, very careful about who you hire. How do you determine that in the interview process? 
oh, that's not an easy thing. You know, at some, at some level, you, you do have to, you know, you make a commitment, but you, some level, you, you only know once, you know, you know, after a year, you'll, I can tell you whether it's looking good or not. Right. <laughs> yeah. But having the wrong people or someone who turns out not to be right for the organization is disruptive. It slows things down in all sorts of ways. And, and it's not good for the team. It's not good for that person. So I think that that's been, you know, it's critical just to spend the time and effort there. What would your team say about your leadership style? What, what are they observing in you? What are they experiencing? I don't know. You have to ask them. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I want to be, I want to be technically good. I want to be provide uh, value there. I want to be um, and open to ideas. So that's what I'd like to be. How do you deal with confrontation, poor performance, those kind of things? When things don't go well, how do you how do you cope with that? Yeah, it's hard for everybody, right? When when somebody, you know, when there's a dispute, um, at least with, with disputes and stuff, you you do try you do have to try and again make it a data driven decision. Like, well, what do we really know here? How well do we know that? But often it comes down to judgment. At some point, you, you don't know, and there isn't really a good way to figure it out. But one of the things I know is that you can often make a decision that's sort of 80% correct, um, whereas you can spend you know months or weeks or whatever to make that a 90% decision, and that's often not worth it. Meaning, if you can make an 80% decision now, or if it takes you a year to get to a 90% decision, in many cases, it's better to make that first decision now, see how it goes, and then reset re your course if need be along the way. But you, can over, you absolutely can overanalyze things. Uh, overanalyzing meaning in the absence of data, just trying to you know, put more decimal, put more numbers after the decimal point, and that's often not time well spent. What inspires you these days and how do you use that to inspire others? I'm inspired by what we're doing at B612 Foundation. I feel like we all know that large asteroid impacts have happened thousands of times on the earth, on, on earth, and that this will continue to happen. It's just a natural process. But the amazing thing to me is that human beings have actually figured out how to predict these ahead of time. And we absolutely can predict decades ahead of time that that an impact is going to happen. Can you, sorry, can you tell us a little bit more about that? I don't mean to, to interrupt, but I'm very curious about how you're, what technology and how you're doing that. Um, basically, we have an understanding of how gravity works and how orbits work. And if you can observe an asteroid often enough to be able to calculate its orbit, you can actually predict its, its location in space extremely well for decades. And then what you do is you look for asteroids whose location and the earth are both going to be in the same location at the same time that i.e., they're going to hit each other and that is possible you know we understand we can make accurate enough measurements we understand the physics we can do these calculations at scale there's a lot of asteroids out there and we can calculate these things enough to predict where uh you know when there are going to be impacts provided we have the will to do it. You have to build telescopes. You have to um, do these calculations and so on. And that's what, you know, B612 Foundation is working on is actually 
um, you know, the, the, the processing, the calculations, the, the doing that at scale, along with others. There's, a, there's many others around the world working on similar things. But we can do that. And then what's amazing after that is that deflecting an asteroid, if you know that one is going to hit, we can actually deflect one away from the Earth. Um, and just, make, just changing its course just slightly enough such that it misses the Earth, which is a moving target. So you, remember, you, so you don't have to actually change the trajectory of an asteroid by much at all, just a tiny, tiny amount. And, and that, so if you add all this up, what it means is that we humans should, if we're doing our jobs here, not have another large asteroid impact on this planet from this point forward. And that's incredible. That, that, that's, you're, we're actually altering the solar system in a very, very tiny way, but the third planet from the sun should not be hit by any large asteroids from this point forward. That's amazing. Wow. That must make you feel like getting up in the morning. It does. It does. <laughs> so, Ed, what do you think we need more of in terms of leadership, given everything you're seeing in the world right now? What needs to change? What advice were you giving to the future leaders? Well, you know, humans are humans, and I don't think humans have changed that much. So leadership is, you know, what was a good leader before is probably mostly similar. What I think is changing is the ability of the people being led to find out things on their own. You aren't being fed information only from your leader, much less than in the past. And I think that's going to require a spirit of openness among leaders showing your work. And when I, when I say something is true, you know, everyone isn't, can't just accept that because there is the possibility now that they can get other points of view easily. They can get, they can do their own, you know, they have access to information that they didn't before. And there's no putting that genie back in the bottle. So I think the leaders need to be aware of the fact that they're not the only source of where people get their information from. And therefore they need to be open and transparent about the, you know, the assertions they make because they can be checked. I think that's a good thing. Mm. We've been watching this unfold with the COVID outbreaks this year and authorities saying, you know, this is what's going on. I'm going to do that. You, know, you just can't make the edict that this is true. You got to show your work, you know, like, why do you, you know, so, so, and, and leaders who did do that or, or governments that did do that had a lot of pushback. People said, well, wait a second, you know, why, is that, why are we doing this? Or why are we doing this? And it, often it turned out that many of the edicts actually weren't based on, on evidence and data. And, you know, maybe that's what you had needed to do early on because they, maybe the admission of we don't know what's going to work, we don't know how this thing spreads yet, and therefore, we're going to shut everything down right now because we don't know. And here's our plan to get back once we figure it out. And here's our plan to figure out, you know, what are, you know, we'll come back and, and in due time, we'll figure it out. They, did, they missed the whole second step. They just said, we're shutting it down. It was horrible leadership. What are, other, what are some other common mistakes you see leaders making these days? And, and what advice might you give them? Uh, well, I mean... This has been true, you know, I think people have been saying this about politicians forever, but, you know, they'll, they'll say one thing at one time and then they'll say something else at another time. And, you know, which one do you really believe in? Um, you know, uh, you'll, and, and you see that everywhere. Or, or, you know, everybody, you all need to do this, but I'll go ahead and do this. 
and and again you know maybe it, you know maybe in the past they could they could have hidden it from people but that's much more difficult now it's pretty clear when when a politician says one thing and does something else now it usually gets out almost immediately in fact yeah <laughs> yeah thank you so much we'll let you get on to your next call thank you so much for doing Take this it's a real pleasure as always thank you thank you Bye-bye. so until next time the world is evolving are you 